Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Aren't you glad, church, that the truth we celebrated last week, as we celebrated Easter, that truth that Christ is risen is just as true today as it was last week. Jesus is alive. And while the reality, or the, excuse me, the celebration of, of Easter has passed, it's a reality that should still be on our minds. And I hope that a week later, you're still excited and you're still considering the resurrection. And this morning, as we go to the scriptures, we're going to return to Luke 24, the passage we were in last week. We're going to return to that chapter and we're going to consider because Jesus is alive how should we live how should we respond now what should our our weeks and our days look like in light of the resurrection so that's where we're headed this morning as we turn to the scriptures but before we go there let me just give you a couple of announcements first I want to encourage you just to make sure that that you're still working hard to stay connected as this thing goes on and it's longer and longer since we've met together in person and maybe longer and longer since you've left your house. I just want to encourage you and remind you that, that we need one another. God has called us together. And in times like these, maybe especially in times like these, we need one another. We need to stay connected because we need encouragement. It may be so easy for us right now to, to drift into patterns of sin or bad ways of thinking. And so let me encourage you to stay connected. And we have some built-in ways to try to help you with that. And hopefully you are aware of these by now. But our most significant gathering is on Sunday mornings at 1045 on Zoom. And I know many of you have been joining us for that. And it has been a, a sweet time. I know it's been good for my soul, good for me to try to keep the rhythm of the week um, and come in together with the people of God on the Lord's Day. And so I uh, hope you plan to join us at 1045. We will sing together. We will pray we will read the scriptures together. And so um, that's an important way and time for us to stay connected. But there are other times throughout the week and those have been emailed to you. We have uh, a time of morning prayer, just a short devotion and prayer on Tuesday mornings and on Friday mornings. On Wednesdays, we're still having our normal midweek gathering at 6.30, working through our study. And if you've never joined us, man, you're welcome to jump in and, and join us on Wednesday evenings. On Thursday evenings, and this has been really cool to, to watch and to listen in on, is uh, the kids are having their time together on Thursday evenings where they're hearing the lesson they would normally hear on Sundays. And Michelle's been working with them and doing activities and games with them. And it's just been a really fun, sweet time for the kids. So um, even if you don't have kids, you're welcome to join in on that and just watch the kids have fun. And um, you may be encouraged by that. I know I have been each Thursday night. So those are just a few of the ways that we're staying connected, but I hope you're also reaching out to one another and um, calling your brothers and sisters and just having times of fellowship um, over the phone or maybe on Zoom, but man, we need one another, and I hope you're working hard to stay connected during this time. I just want to encourage you uh, towards that. One other thing I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful, for, faithful in and during this unusual time is just to be faithful in your obedience to give to worship God in your giving. And I know so many of you have been faithfulness and um, I'm thankful to God for your obedience and your faithfulness, but I just wanna encourage you that just because we're not meeting together and you can't come and put your money um, or your offering into the basket that um, we've still been called to work together to, um, to support the church. And I just wanna encourage you to be faithful there. You can, you can give by mail. You can mail your, your, your offering to the church or you can give it, through our website. And so that's all set up and ready for you. So I just want to encourage you to be faithful in that, um, even during these times. With that said, if you are in need, if something has happened um, with your job and you're in need, please let us know because we want to work hard and do whatever we can as a church to support one another, um, especially when we're in need. So just a few things I want to remind you of. And man, I'm excited to go to the Word of God with you this morning. I will tell you it's hard for me <laughs> to get ready to preach the word to you without seeing you and without singing with you uh, before we do this. So I will look forward to, man, I look forward to the day when we're back together and we can sing together and, and then go to the word. But as we prepare our hearts and as I prepare my own heart to share God's word with you, would you just take a moment just to quiet 
your heart and maybe if you haven't sat down yet, just to sit down and I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to, we're going to go to the scriptures together. But why don't we take just a minute to go to God in prayer, to thank him for his goodness and to ask for his provision. And then we will spend some time together in Luke chapter 24. But would you join me in prayer? God, we come to you this morning as your people, acknowledging that you are God and God alone. You are the creator, you are the sustainer. You are above all things, and yet you have called us your children. We come to you knowing that all things are in your hands, and we are yours. That you love us, and that nothing can separate us from your love. God, I come to you this morning asking you, as we have over and over over the last several weeks, God, asking you for wisdom and asking you for peace. God, we need wisdom to navigate just the uncertainties of our lives. We can't see tomorrow. We don't know tomorrow, but we know that you do, and we ask for your wisdom as we make decisions, as we move through these times. God, we also ask for peace. Right now, it can be so easy to to buy in and to feel the chaos. God, we know that you have established peace and you grant peace to your children, and we ask for that. God, we also ask for your continued care for us as a church. We haven't seen one another in quite some time now. But God, I pray that you would continue to unite us together in love and in care and concern for one another. Would you protect us from losing focus on the fact that you have called us to live life alongside one another even when we can't stand beside one another? God, if there's any among us who are feeling lonely or isolated, God, I pray that the fellowship we can have, whether by phone or by um, online interactions or, or through this video, God, would you use even this time to communicate fellowship between your people? and to connect and bind us together. God, as we come together, I also recognize that there are those among us who are in need. Some who have health issues in God, and we pray for your healing hand. God, there are some who are unsure about their work or who are out of work. So many things going on right now. God, we just pray for your provision. God, we don't understand why or how, but we know that you are working your plan out. And so we ask in all these things that your will would be done. God, I continue to pray for us as families, for those of us living in homes, and we've been together so much. God, maybe patience is wearing thin or emotions are run high. God, I just pray for for peace and patience for us as families with one another. I continue to pray as I have several times over the last few weeks. God, would you make this a sweet time? Would you bind us together and love as families? God, would you give us more and more opportunities to be in your word together, to sing together as families, to pray together as families? God, I pray that we would come out on the other side of this, united more closely to one another and to you. God, would you grow us in maturity as individuals and as families and as a church. God, we thank you for your continued provision. You have been so, so kind to us individually as as, as a church. And God, I pray that you would continue to provide and that as you do, we would be good stewards of the gifts that you give. God, as we continue through this time together, through the opening and the reading and preaching of your word, God, I ask that you would encourage your church Would you comfort, would you convict, would you encourage, would you exhort so that we, the people of God, may be equipped for every good work. God, speak to us now through your word and through the power of your spirit. For our joy, for your glory, we ask these things. In the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, this time I want to invite you to to take your Bibles Open to Luke chapter 24. I do hope you have your Bible. I hope you're following along. 
as we go through the scriptures together. And I'm going to start um, right off by just reading the text that we're going to be considering this morning. And we're, we're jumping right back into the same context that we were in last week. As we come to this passage in Luke 24, it is now the evening of the Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. As we come to this scene, what we, what we see is that the disciples, the followers of Jesus are gathered together, and, and not just the 12, but, but many of those who had followed Jesus closely. And they're gathered together, and they're trying to wrap their minds around all that has taken place. They've seen Jesus crucified and buried. And now some of them have seen him alive, and they're gathered together, and they're discussing these things, and That's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24. We'll start reading in verse 36 and read to the end of the chapter. So, hear the word of God. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of God. May He had his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. So here we are. The week, the Sunday after Easter, and last week we focused so intentionally on the resurrection. We remembered starting last Friday evening that he died, that his blood was shed, that he was buried but that he did not stay in the grave, that Jesus is alive. And that's what we celebrated and considered together so specifically last Sunday. While this is something that we continue to celebrate every Lord's Day when we come together, I thought that this Sunday, the week after, it'd be worth asking and considering the question, where do we go from here? We believe that he's alive. We know that this is good news. But what's next? We believe in the resurrection, but what now? Well, this morning as we return to Luke 24, we're joining a group of people who are probably asking the same question or would be soon. The disciples have gone through this whirlwind of a weekend. Their teacher and Lord, who they had given their lives to following, he's been arrested, crucified, and buried. And now, three three days later, they have good reason to believe that he's alive. But where is he now? And you can imagine the conversations they're having in that room, talking about what they've seen in his death, now discussing the, the sight of him risen. Some have seen them. And they're talking about these things, and, and maybe the questions are starting to come up among them. What do we do now? What is going to happen next? Well, they're about to get answers to some of those questions. And in fact, they're going to get them from the Lord himself. What I want to help us consider this morning is that what Jesus says to them and the charge and the instruction and the hope he gives to them in this passage is for us. 
And these are things that we should hear and apply as we consider what we do and how we live as those who believe that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. So that's where we're headed. But first, I want to encourage us to try to put ourselves into the room with these disciples, to try to put ourselves into their conversations. Like we've already said and read in the text, it's Sunday night, the day of the resurrection. They're together, not just the 11, but, but others. And, and the room is filled with excitement. It's, there are those who are giving testimony that they have seen him, they have heard him, that he is alive. And as these conversations are taking place, all of a sudden something startling happens. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Now if we go and read the same story in the other gospel accounts, specifically in John, we read that they're in a room and that the doors are locked. But we see that even though the doors are locked, there's there's this wonderful breach of security. All of a sudden, Jesus is with them, in the flesh, with them. And while they had heard that he was alive, all of a sudden he's just there and we read that his appearance was startling and frightening. One moment he's not there, then all of a sudden he is. Jesus is standing among them. Luke says they were startled and frightened, but notice the first words that Jesus says to them. He said to them, peace to you. Now, it's worth noting that this was a very common greeting in this time. This was a a way that people would often welcome one another. Peace to you. And while it's true that it's a common greeting, and we could just very quickly dismiss it and just keep moving on with the story, I don't think we should write it off that quickly. Whether it's customary or not, Jesus said it. And maybe even more significantly, Luke records it. There's many things that were said and spoken that aren't recorded in Scripture. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes that the first thing Jesus said to his disciples as he appears to them is this. Peace to you. And yes, he knows they're frightened. And yes, this would have been a customary greeting. But I can't help but stop and consider the weight and the significance of these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus on the evening after the morning when he rose from the dead, conquering death, defeating sin, securing the redemption of his people. And now he stands before his disciples and he says to them, peace. Maybe you like I, hearing those words from the lips of our Lord on that day. Think of Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. No doubt, this greeting from Jesus was intended in part to calm frightened disciples. But we know is that Jesus also entered that room that night as the one who that morning had secured peace for his people for all time. All who believe in the work of Jesus can be reconciled to God. You know the words of Paul in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because he lives, because he's alive, we can have peace. Jesus enters the room. He sees many of his disciples for the first time since his resurrection, and he greets them. Peace, peace to you. And it's here in this room on that Sunday night, the disciples start to see proof that this is no myth, this is no fantasy, this is no dream. Jesus really is alive. What you may have noticed, as we read, is because of the way he entered the room, because of his sudden appearance, Luke says that they thought, well, maybe it's a spirit, maybe it's a a ghost. 
Was this some kind of vision of Jesus or was this actually Jesus himself? And it's an important thing to consider because if all we have here is a a vision of Jesus, then maybe he's not really risen from the dead. But of course, one of the things we affirm as Christians, and it's so important that we affirm this clearly, is that we don't speak of the resurrection metaphorically. We aren't saying that he appeared as a, a spirit or a vision. No, we believe in the actual, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's to say that the very person and body that was put into the grave was raised to life. And that's what we see here. Jesus shows to himself to his disciples, and he makes this abundantly clear. He is not a ghost. He is not a phantom. This is not a vision. This is the one whom they have known. This is the one in whom they have believed. This is their Lord. Look at verse 38 again. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and he showed him his feet. We won't spend long here, but this is really important. We said last week, we acknowledged that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we have no reason for hope. If there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we don't have the hope of salvation. We don't have the hope of eternal life. But what we have here is proof of his actual physical bodily resurrection. He goes to his disciples and he shows them his hands and his feet bearing the scars. He invites them to touch him and to see that he's not a ghost. He is flesh and blood just like you or I. And just like you or I, this person in the flesh had physical needs, which is why he says in verse 41, have you anything here to eat? Such a a basic question. But yet it's another proof that Jesus was showing them and that Luke shares with us. Because ghosts or spirits or visions don't eat. But here's Jesus in the flesh and this is just another indication that this is really him. He is risen from the dead. He is alive. We're told that they give him fish and he eats it. So just picture the room again. Here's Jesus. He's sat down to eat some fish. And no doubt surrounding him are all these disciples just in amazement. Here he is, our Lord and our Savior who we saw die. Now he's here. He's eating a meal. They have what I would describe based on what Luke says as Joyful wonder. Verse 41, we see that after they touched his hands and they saw his feet, Luke records that they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Now, this is a verse that has left both translators and readers uh, scratching their heads because we have this seemingly contradictory set of words. Disbelief, joy, marveling. So some have taken this and that idea of disbelief, and understandably so, have suggested that the disciples are still very, very skeptical at this point. Luke says that they disbelieved. But I interpret this sentence and this grouping of words differently than that. I think this combination of joy and marveling along with disbelief implies more of amazement or wonder. It's a rhetorical device. Like we would say, I can't believe it's true. How incredible. He's alive. I can't believe it. At this point, I don't think Luke is indicating skepticism. It's what I call joyful wonder. I cannot believe what I'm seeing, but I can't deny it. He's right in front of me, and it's a joyful wonder and amazement as they marvel. Here is our risen Lord. He's with us. I've touched his hands. I've seen his feet. I've seen the scars. He's eating fish. As I think about this reaction, 
I can't help but ask myself and ask you the question. As we think about the resurrection of Christ, is there any sense in you still of joyful wonder? And I know for many of us, the resurrection has been a settled fact in our hearts and minds for a very long time. But surely we should never lose this sense of wonder. God in flesh, killed, but then raised to life. Jesus rose from the dead. And the response of the disciples was this joyful wonder and marveling. Don't you wonder what it would have been like? I hope when you read the Bible you have these kind of thoughts. What would it have been like to be in that room that night? To see Jesus, to touch him. As we come back to to the text, I, I want to ask the question we asked earlier. Where do we go from here? We have a risen Lord, but what's next? Well, after Jesus finishes his meal, he begins to talk to his disciples and to give them some direction. And it's here that we get answers. As Jesus starts to explain to them what has happened and what should happen now. He explains that he has accomplished the work that the Father sent him to accomplish. He has died and rose again, accomplishing salvation for all who believe. And now he's preparing his disciples because they're going to go and now proclaim that message of forgiveness and salvation to the world. If you're following on your notes, I labeled verses 36 to 43 as the appearance of the resurrected Lord. And now as we come to 44 to 49, we have the commission of the resurrected Lord. Jesus begins to give his disciples instruction or marching orders. It's what we've historically called as a church the, the Great Commission. But here in Luke's account, we get more than the command to go and tell. In this conversation, Jesus unpacks more details about what he's accomplished and what has been fulfilled and what should be shared and proclaimed. He starts by going back and helping them see that the, the message of salvation or the plan of salvation has been foretold and has been unfolding throughout history. And this is, this is important for us to recognize and know, church. The death of Christ was not a surprise to God. No, in fact, it was part of his plan of salvation that was planned before the beginning of time. He planned it before eternity. And it's been prophesied and told throughout the scriptures. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to know. He wants them to understand the background of what has happened and what has led them to where they are now. This wasn't a mistake or an unplanned turn of events. Look at verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he, he opened the scriptures, he opened the prophets, and he opened Moses, and he opened the Psalms. And he opened their minds to understand these things and said to them, Thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Once again, let's get the picture. He's with his disciples. They've just seen him die. And now they're seeing him alive. And he wants them to know, I, I told you this would, would happen. And this has been prophesied and foretold throughout the generations. This is what I spoke to you, that everything written in the scriptures would have to be fulfilled. And if you were with us last week, this should sound familiar because this is a very similar conversation to the conversation Jesus had with those two travelers on the road to Emmaus when he explained to them all of the scriptures that pointed to himself. And this isn't a new message from Jesus. This is a message that he was sharing with his disciples before the cross. We can go back to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. This is before they went to Jerusalem. This is before the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This was a saying that was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. What Jesus said to his disciples over and over during their time together 
and what he told the travelers on the road to Emmaus. And what he's saying now again in Luke 24 is that God's plan for salvation has been in place since the beginning of time and it was foretold throughout history. A crucified and resurrected Messiah is not a change or a modification in the plan of God. No, this was the plan all along and everything that has happened was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Something Jesus had tried to tell his disciples. In fact, on the night before his death at the Last Supper, we read in Luke 22, verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then he quoted for them from Psalm 22. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. I hope you understand how significant this is and how really it should help us read our Bibles better. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the center and the focal point of it all. How's this for a Sunday night Bible study? Jesus with his disciples, and we see in verse 45 that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this was written that I would die and suffer and rise from the dead. It's there in the scriptures. And know this, church, that what Jesus is doing here is more than just giving them cool insights to talk about. What I want you to see is all of this, this opening of their minds to understand the scriptures, this is preparation. What I've already alluded to and what we're going to see more fully in just a minute is that Jesus is preparing them to go and to proclaim him and the message of salvation to the world. And these things are things they need to understand as they go. They're going to be taking the message to Jews, to religious leaders, to knowledgeable people who will have questions and the disciples need to be prepared to go and say, this has been written all along. The Messiah you look for had to suffer. The suffering servant and the Messiah are the same person and what Jesus did fulfills the scriptures. Think about this. Jesus is preparing them and giving them the tools they need to go and to proclaim him to the world. We should be thankful for the time Jesus spent with his disciples on this night. Remember, they are some of the men who will go on to write the scriptures. They would share with others how the Old Testament revealed Jesus and how the scriptures pointed to him, and those things have been written down and handed down to us. What Jesus is telling them and how he's equipping them lays the foundation for what we have received. As we read the New Testament, specifically in Acts, we, we see the Old Testament unpacked, and this all comes back to the Jesus opening their eyes to see and to understand, but because before the cross, they had not seen it, they had not understood it, but now they do. And we understand our scriptures and the Bible better because of this. I said it last week and I'll say it again now. This should be an encouragement for you and for me to, to read our Old Testament and to see Jesus revealed. We can read with eyes opened how all that happened before the coming of Christ was pointing towards him. How all the history of the nation of Israel was laying the foundation for his coming and for the work that he would accomplish on the cross. The sacrifices, the bloodshed, it was all pointing to him. Jesus knew his disciples needed to understand this and they needed to understand it in part because this was the message that they were being sent to proclaim. Look at verse 46 again. He said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So first he shows them that the scriptures pointed to him, but we also see here he's unpacking what that suffering, what that death, what that resurrection was meant to accomplish and what message it is that they are to share. Here we see the offer of the plan of salvation. Not only do the scriptures foretell the death of Christ, not only do they point to his resurrection, but the message of the Bible is that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is accomplished. Once again, this is the message that 
was in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, Moses, they all pointed to the fact that forgiveness is available, that it's coming through the promised one, through the suffering servant. So we go again to Isaiah 53 because it's so, so helpful. Long before Jesus came, it was written that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement was brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is what Jesus is helping them to see. It was foretold that I would die. And the reason for my death is the forgiveness of sins. And we know this, but this is where Jesus is helping his disciples to put the pieces together. This evening after his resurrection, he's letting them know that what happened on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, this was done so I could pay the price for your sins. Forgiveness is available. And now he's commissioning them to go and take this message of forgiveness, this message of salvation to all nations. He says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. You've seen me. You saw my life. You saw how I lived. You saw how I died. You have seen me raised from the dead. This is now your job. This is your calling. This is why you are here, so you can go and you can be witnesses of me and of the salvation that all people need. Recognize what's happening here. This is the start of the way that you receive the gospel. These witnesses who had seen and heard and now are being sent. Not only did he die, not only did he rise from the dead, but he revealed himself. He revealed himself to people who would be witnesses. They saw him, they touched him, their eyes were open. He helped them to understand the scriptures. And most of them went on from this day to give their lives for the proclamation of the message. They gave their lives going out and calling people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. What we read about in this story is the start of something that would change the world. And I can't help but think about those guys in the room and some of the things that they said many years later. Think of John. John would have been there. He would have been there that night and witnessed Jesus and heard what Jesus said. Do you remember what he wrote in the first chapter of his first epistle? Listen to these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to and proclaim to you the eternal life. He's talking about Jesus, all this. It's about Jesus. He was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I can't help but think that as John wrote those words, that he was thinking back to that night when he touched those scarred hands. He saw those scarred feet that had been pierced for our salvation. And it was because John saw the resurrected Christ, because he knew he was alive, that he gave the rest of his life to proclaiming the forgiveness of sins that is available because of what Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? Let me give you one more example because I can't help myself. Consider Peter. Peter, who on the night when Jesus was crucified, denied three times even knowing him. But now Peter's in this room. He sees the resurrected Lord. He hears the command of Jesus to go and proclaim. And he goes and he becomes one of the greatest heralds of the work and the message of Jesus. With that in mind and with what Jesus said to them on that night, consider the words from Acts 10 that Peter spoke. Peter says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, 
for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him, listen to this, this is awesome. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And do you hear how much of what is said in Luke 24 is repeated by Peter here in Acts 10? He says, let me tell you about Jesus. I'm a witness of him. I saw his life. I saw his death. And after he died and rose from the dead, God made him to appear to us. He made him appear to me as a, as a witness. And it's because I've seen him and I know that he's alive that I proclaim these things to you. And by the way, this is awesome. By the way, the prophets, the scriptures you have, they all point to him. And they all testify that in him, forgiveness is available. He will be the judge of the living and the dead. And the only way to be saved from the wrath of God is to repent and to believe. You see those similarities. Peter was there. He saw him. He heard the commission. He understood that he had been set apart as a witness. And he goes. For generations and generations, the Jewish people lived under sacrificial system. The shedding of the blood of animals. But now Peter and others could go. And they could proclaim that Jesus is the one who once and for all was sacrificed for sins. And by the way, this is a message that we need today. And maybe you're hearing this and this is something that you've never truly understood or truly believed. Jesus came and this is why he came. This is why the cross and this is why the resurrection. He died and his blood was shed as a sacrifice, as a covering for sins. And the Bible says that all who repent of their sins and believe in him will be saved, which is to mean you can be reconciled to God, you can be forgiven, and you can be granted eternal life with him, spared from the eternal wrath of God. This is what the disciples are starting to understand on this Sunday evening as Jesus speaks to them. And this is the message that they went out and proclaimed faithfully as witnesses. And this is what we've been called to. We've been called to be witnesses just as they were. As we've worked through this passage, we've seen the foretelling of the plan of salvation. We've seen the offer of the plan of salvation. We've seen the witnesses of the plan of salvation. And in verse 47, we see the, the reach of the plan of salvation. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. This is huge, church. Jesus is sending his disciples to all nations. The gospel is for all the world. Jesus says, proclaim it to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. And before we talk more about all nations, I do want to focus for a second on that phrase, beginning with Jerusalem. If you read through the gospels, if you read through Luke in particular, the whole momentum of Luke, what he says over and over is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of emphasis on this walk of Jesus, this travel of Jesus towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the point of focus because it was in Jerusalem where he would be arrested, crucified, and buried. So all of the story, it's all pointing towards and building towards Jerusalem. But now we see, starting with Jerusalem and going out, the proclamation of the gospel. The focus up to this point had been on getting to Jerusalem. But now, after the cross, Jerusalem's no longer the destination. It's the starting point for a message that will be taken to all the world. So we can go to Acts chapter 1, where we read, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem and it goes worldwide. And this is God's plan for reaching the world. This is the commission he gave to his disciples. Go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
And since we've already talked about the fact that this is a fulfillment, that the Old Testament points to this, consider how this is a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to a guy named Abram. We can go all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles, to Genesis chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now as Jesus sits with his disciples, we see how that promise reaches fulfillment. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, a descendant of Abraham has made salvation possible that now will be extended to all the world, not for the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. We can unpack that a lot more. Paul talks about this in Galatians, how we are the seed of Abraham and how the gospel spreads now to Jews and Gentiles alike. The message of Jesus is for all people, of all lands, of all tongues. As we think about this small band of people gathered in this room in Jerusalem with Jesus on that night, this is where it started. As we think about the small group of people, we think the task is too big. How could this small group take this message to all nations? But of course, we know that this message isn't heralded and it isn't taken and it isn't spread primarily through human power but it's through the power of the spirit and we see that in verse 49 Jesus tells his disciples this behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high he tells his disciples something he's already told them prior to his death, that when he goes away, they will not be left alone. He will send a helper. What Jesus is talking about is the coming of the Holy Spirit. He describes it as power from on high. He says, wait in Jerusalem because I will send my spirit and he will be in you. And it's the spirit of God that goes in us and with us and before us as we proclaim his message to the world. So again, we can go to Acts chapter 1. Maybe you know this, that the writer of Luke, Luke, he also wrote Acts, and it's really part 1 and part 2. Luke gets us to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, and then Acts picks up and tells us the story of the early church. And we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the, world, ends of the earth. And maybe you know what happens in Acts 2 the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes down, fills all who believe. And it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the disciples are empowered and emboldened to give their lives in the proclamation of the gospel. And we have been given the same commission and we have been given the same Spirit, church. Where do we go from here? We know and believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we know and we hear that he has given us a commission, a call to go and to share this message of the death, burial, and resurrection, of the need for repentance and the offer of forgiveness of sins. This is our message to proclaim. We have the Old Testament scriptures that point to Jesus. We have the testimonies of the disciples and the apostles. And we have the commission of Jesus that as his followers, we are to go to all nations proclaiming. Here we are 2,000 years later and we have heard and we believed because those before us have been faithful and now it's our turn to go and to tell and to take this message next door into the next neighborhood into the city, into the state, into the world. It's not just a calling for a select group of Christians. It is a call for us all. We've been called to proclaim the message of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins to the world. We've heard the commission in Luke. We've heard it in Acts. You probably know well the same commission given in Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here's a good promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is our call in church. This is our privilege to take the message of forgiveness to the nations. And while that might seem daunting, we have the Spirit of God within us. And it starts for most of us in our own homes, with our children, with our spouse, to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. And if you feel inadequate, remember that God has put his spirit inside of you to help you. He told the disciples, don't leave the city until you've received the spirit. And we know that all who receive Jesus, who repent and believe, are given the same spirit, the spirit of God that goes before us and does the work of hearts change. If you want to know what can happen when a small group of spirit-empowered witnesses give their lives to the gospel, we are the proof. Go and read the book of Acts, and you can see what happens when a small group of spirit-empowered witnesses live in obedience and proclaim the gospel of God with joy. And I chose that word joy specifically because as we come back and we finish this section of scripture, I think we see this emphasis that what happens after this day doesn't happen out of duty or obligation. These disciples gave their lives with joy and as a display of worship to God. Look at verse 50. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried away up into heaven. This is what we call the ascension of Jesus. It's a significant event. While Luke 24 makes it seem like it happened on the same day, we know from other parts of Scripture, this is actually 40 days later. There's a gap of time between verses 49 and 50. Jesus spent 40 days appearing to people, proclaiming the message of the kingdom. We read that in Acts 1, verses 3 and 4. But after those 40 days, Luke tells us that he led his disciples out of Jerusalem. He blessed them. And then he was carried up into heaven. And it's an event that we don't stop to consider enough. And there's a lot of significance around the ascension of Jesus. The risen Lord ascends into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and awaiting the day of his return. When we say he's alive, it's not only that he was alive then, but that he's alive now. He went up to heaven alive as our Savior and Lord. The ascension is another affirmation that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the one that God promised to send, and now he has been exalted. He's at the right hand of the Father. We could spend a lot of time talking about the ascension. But I want to finish this morning by considering the response of the disciples to what they saw when they witnessed the resurrected Lord and when they saw him return to heaven. As we think about the departure of Jesus, it would be easy to think that the disciples would be downcast or have a feeling of loss. And I'm sure there must have been times when his absence felt them leaving feeling empty or times when they longed just to be with him and to hear him again. But while there might have been times like that, that's not what Luke emphasizes. Instead, look what Luke says about the disciples and their response as Jesus leaves and what they do in the days that follow. Verse 52. As he's ascending, they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What is so apparent is that the disciples now fully know, fully believe who Jesus is and why he came. Sure, they had long believed that he was a Messiah, but now they also recognize that he is the Savior, the one who can grant forgiveness. And we're told that as he's carried away into heaven, they worship him. They're not bowing and weeping because he's leaving. They are worshiping him for what he's done and where he's going, and they know the promise of his return. They saw him for who he was. They honored him and extolled him. 
Once again, if we were to guess what their sentiments would have been, as Jesus left, we might have guessed sadness or grief. But Luke tells us that they now see so well who Jesus is, and it leads them to worship, and not only to worship, but great joy. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They do exactly what Jesus had commanded. They go back to Jerusalem, and as they go, they don't go with heads hung low. They go with joy. They have seen Jesus depart, and they know what he has called them to do. They know what lies ahead. And as they consider Jesus, and as they consider their calling, they have joy. Perhaps joy knowing that their salvation has been accomplished. Perhaps joy in knowing that they have the message of salvation to proclaim to the world. This is good news. Perhaps joy in knowing they've been chosen by God and entrusted with his gospel. Probably a mixture of all these things. But we know for sure is that after all that they have seen and heard, they are filled with joy. They return with joy and they devote themselves to going to the temple and praising God. Why? Because they know God has planned and ordained and seen all these things to fruition. He is the source of all that they have seen and experienced and they praise him. We began asking the question, where do we go from here? As people who know and believe in the resurrected Christ, how do we live, how do we respond? And we've seen two things primarily. First, we see that we've been given a commission. We too are witnesses as if we heard and the Spirit has opened the eyes of our hearts to see and believe and now we are sent as witnesses to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all people. And I would encourage you not to think of all people in a generic way but all people in a very specific way because there are people you know who need to hear. This is our call. But as we go and share, we should not be motivated by duty, but by a genuine love for God. We should do this out of worship for him. We should respond and obey as people of joy. If you think of the Christian life as a life of drudgery or duty, you have missed so much. We are a people chosen by God. We have been forgiven of all the things that we have done against him. We've been given new life. We should be living lives of worship and praise. We should, church, we should be people of joy in all circumstances. Rejoice always, Paul says. And again, I say, rejoice. Our joy and worship should go hand in hand with sharing the message of hope. Where do we go from here? May we be a people of praise, a people of joy a people who constantly have the gospel of Jesus on our lips. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. May this be our message. May this be our song. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for preserving all the scriptures, but in particular, this account for us. Through it, we can have confidence in your resurrection. Through it, we can better understand the purpose of the Old Testament. Through it, we can have a clear sense of how you would have us to live. And as people who have been changed by the power of your death and your resurrection, I ask that you would make us bold and faithful witnesses. That we would be faithful witnesses of the call to repentance and the offer of forgiveness. God, would you motivate us, not out of a sense of duty, but out of joy and out of awe for who you are. Create in us a genuine love and care for those around us and a, a deeper conviction that your gospel is the, it is the answer for their greatest need. God, we are living in uncertain times. Would you make us a people of hope? Would you grant us wisdom? Would you keep us in perfect peace? We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior and Lord, who sits at the right hand of Father. Amen. Church, hear the benediction. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Church, you are loved. Know that you are not alone. Please reach out if there's anything you need. I will look forward to seeing you at 10.45 a.m.